0: It's September the 1st, 1983, around 5 a.m. local time. You're a passenger on a Boeing 747, 35,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean. You stretch your aching back as much as you can, thinking about the comforts of home waiting for you in Seoul, South Korea. Only memories let you escape this metal tube of which you've been confined since your stopover in Anchorage and before that, New York. These business trips eat up precious time that you could otherwise spend with your family. Somewhere on your flight is a passenger of note. Congressman Malary McDonald of Georgia's 7th Congressional District and a member of the famously anti-communist John Birch Society. You thought you caught a glimpse of him when you first boarded, but for now you close your eyes and sink back into your seat. Suddenly there's an explosion and the plane jolts from its course as if yanked by an invisible tether. The howl of rushing air and terrified screams blasts your ears. Your body tumbles with the wounded plane fully conscious and wholly without control. The massive jet stabilizes momentarily, then spirals down towards the abyss. Every violent oscillation throws you without mercy and twists your stomach into knots. Luggage erupts from the overhead bins and people are tossed like rag dolls within the cabin. Gravity clutches the plane in a fatal embrace and feeds the ocean 269 human souls. I think the downing of Korean Air Flight 007 demonstrates the level of stupidity and paranoia the Cold War reached, more astoundingly as this was the second passenger jet the Soviet Union shot down. In 1978, Korean Airlines Flight 902 was en route from Paris to Seoul with a stop over in Anchorage. This flight took the plane over the North Pole and due to the navigation technology they had at the time and how compasses function when flying over the top of the earth, the pilots ended up off course. Instead of flying towards Seoul, they ended up flying towards Murmansk in the Soviet Union. The jet was discovered on radar. The Soviets sent a Sukhoi Su-15 fighter to intercept the airline. The airline did not respond to warnings, and the fighter pilot Alexander Bosov, seeing the plane was clearly marked as a Korean Airlines jet, tried to convince his superiors on the ground that the craft was that the craft he was looking at was a passenger plane. They ordered him to shoot it down anyway. Basov launched two R-60 short-range air-to-air missiles. One missed, and the other hit the left wing and punctured the fuselage. One Korean passenger was killed, and others were injured. KAL-902 was forced to land in a frozen lake in Karelia, close to the Finnish border. In the aftermath, there were two deaths, and 107 survivors of the incident, But the Soviets refused to collaborate with the international investigation as to why exactly the plane had flown off course in the first place. Those 107 survivors of Flight uh, 902 were lucky, unlike those of Flight 007, victims of a titanic conflict between East and West. We're going to talk about events mostly during Brezhnev's leadership in the USSR, a period that's often dubbed as the era of stagnation, lackluster economic growth and a feeling of no purpose. I heard a Russian YouTuber describe this period as an existence within the movie Groundhog Day. Nothing changes. But the Soviet Union maintained their military might in terms of funding, technology, and firepower. In the game of superpowers, you couldn't let your guard down. And the KGB was right there on the espionage front. My main source for much of this series was Ronald Hingley's book aptly titled The Russian Secret Police, which was published in 1970, and that has promptly come to an end as Hingley's timeline stops at 1970. For this episode, I mostly used accounts from the Matrokin Archive, which we will talk about in some detail. We are approaching the end of this journey we set on over a year ago. After this episode, we have one more on the KGB then the FSB. I'll have a summary episode and we'll discuss some things that I think I missed. After that, we will broaden our secret police horizons beyond Russia. Let's hope I can stick this landing. Now, with that out of the way, let's start up that theme music and be on our way. In this ninth edition of Russian Secret Police, we'll take a deep dive into the KGB's web of infiltration and spying during the rule of Leonid Brezhnev. We'll look at how Brezhnev rose from a typical family to the top of the Communist Party. KGB disinformation campaigns, Soviet support in suppressing foreign dissidents, a new KGB chief with a taste for repression, and more. Who was Leonid Brezhnev? What was the role of the KGB in foreign wars? How did the KGB's methods evolve with the times? You are listening to the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do, and I'm on a mission to help us build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. My name is Jack, and I spend hours researching and engaging with my morbid curiosity of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We look at how secret police enforce tyranny and strike fear in their people. Let's recap. In the last few episodes, we met Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, the King of Corn, and saw how he denounced the terrors of his predecessor and moved the Soviet Union in a direction that left many aspects of Stalinism in the country's rearview mirror. Though Khrushchev attempted to reform the Soviet government, he did not have clean hands on his rise to power, having participated in Stalin's purges by signing off on arrests or executions of his close comrades. Khrushchev was familiar with tragedy and loss, since his first wife died of an infectious disease at a young age. Death and destruction followed Khrushchev through his experience in both the Russian Civil War and the Soviets' battle against Nazi Germany. The Soviets crushed the German war machine and brought the fight to Hitler's doorstep in the spring of 1945. Khrushchev spent much of his time in Kiev helping rebuild his native Ukraine, until he was recalled to Moscow to join Stalin's inner circle at the Kremlin. Following Stalin's death, Khrushchev eliminated both the notorious Lavrentiy Beria and Georgi Malenkov's opposing faction in the party. Khrushchev later aired Stalin's dirty laundry in a secret speech to the party congress and set forth to change the USSR. Khrushchev was the first Russian head of state to visit the United States, a journey no other Russian ruler from the Tsars to the Bolsheviks, had taken. He toured the United States, visited American friends, and met ordinary Americans. The secret police, the KGB, also underwent significant reforms. Notably, the KGB's first leader, Ivan Serov, was never allowed to hold a position on the Central Committee as Beria did. The KGB chief's power was intentionally curtailed in the bureaucracy to minimize the risk of the secret police cannibalizing the party and the people before it would be the Communist Party, not the political police. That would be the preeminent institution in the Soviet Union. But make no mistake, the KGB did not have a diminished role. They turned their attention to external threats posed by their rivals and adversaries in the West. The KGB deployed a number of tactics and Bycraft to fight their enemies. Infiltration was by far their method of choice. The KGB infiltrated foreign governments all over the globe, including the United States. India was the testing ground for the KGB's penetration of foreign governments, and they used the lessons learned there to refine their methods for other missions. The KGB deployed agents like Rudolf Abel, real name William August Fisher, to collect data on U.S. nuclear secrets. Abel used a photo techniques to shrink uh, photographs of text or paragraphs of text into something that would resemble a dot of ink to the naked eye. He also used a hollow screws to hide messages. Another KGB agent, Jack Barsky, was trained to use cipher pads to encrypt uh, sensitive material. Jack provided insights into how the KGB recruited their agents. The KGB almost always sought you out. No uh, one did not simply apply to the KGB. During the tense days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the KGB was instrumental in maintaining back channels between officials in Washington and Moscow to negotiate a settlement. A fortunate conclusion to the crisis was reached when KGB agent Alexander Feklosov and ABC correspondent John Scully agreed informally and on behalf of their respective governments to remove Soviet missiles from Cuba in exchange for the removal of American missiles in Turkey. All-out nuclear conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union had been avoided, but Khrushchev's days in power were numbered. In 1964, Leonid Brezhnev, with the help of the KGB, secured the Soviet Union's steering wheel for himself. Let's get to know Russia's next leader, Leonid Brezhnev. Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev was born on December the 19th, 1906, in Kamenskoye, Ukraine a small city on the Dnipro River within the Russian Empire. His father, Ilya Yakulov, Yakulovich Brezhnev, was a skilled metal worker, and his mother, Natalia Denisovna Mazalov, was a well-educated woman. Both Brezhnev's parents valued young Leonid getting a good education. Despite Brezhnev's Ukrainian origins and ethnicity, he did consider himself to be Russian. The Brezhnevs were a pretty normal working-class family. In fact, Ilya's uh, specialized skills in metalworking allowed their family to be slightly higher than just comfortable. They weren't Lenin levels of wealth and privilege, but they were doing well for themselves. As the Bolsheviks increased their prominence in the Russian Empire, Leonid's parents didn't even actively support them one way or another. The Brezhnevs worked, earned their way, and tried to do their best and didn't mind politics. Sounds like most people. Leonid's mom dreamt of him becoming an engineer while his father uh, thought of him as maybe a future diplomat. He spent summers swimming in the Dnipro River, the family had plenty of food, he he really had it all right. I think Brezhnev would have just been some regular dude nobody, nobody ever heard of if it weren't for what happened next. Both the October Revolution and the following Civil War shaped Brezhnev's worldview significantly, what economic fortunes he had as a child were virtually eviscerated during the revolution they were forced to move away they being the family uh, were forced to move away from Kamenskaya to Kursk where his, uh, where his parents were originally from and leonid took up a job loading trucks the civil war and later the war with nazi germany which we'll get into later also shaped leonid's views on suffering and violence He went from having something to very little thanks to the Bolsheviks, and he saw suffering brought on by famine. Brezhnev had a distaste for violence, or at least he didn't seem to be much of a fan. Anyway, the family adapted to these changes and did what they could to provide for themselves. Leonid completed an education in both land management and metallurgy and graduated from the Kemenskaya Metallurgical Technicum in 1935. And became an engineer in Ukraine's iron and steel industry, but Leonid's dream, uh, but Leonid dreamt of being an actor and uh, and was a, a poetry fan. His passions were truly in the arts. Now I tried to get ChatGTP to create some funny poems about Leonid Brezhnev, but it refused. Apparently, it thinks that quote it would be disrespectful to do so uh, for or related to a historical figure. Okay. Uh, so here are some limericks that I think Brezhnev would like. <clears throat> there once was a man from the Soviet Union who was forbidden from taking communion. He woke up in the night by the KGB's light, and they shot him with a harpoon gun. Okay, here's another uh, poem of what I, what would have been, I think, one of Brezhnev's favorite poems. Okay, uh, there once was a mouse or two who liked to nibble on Lenin's shoe. But wait, there's a cat who loves to hunt rats. And now the mice are pieces of poo. You know, poetry is considered high art, and I think these are up in the stratosphere. When Brezhnev wasn't engaged in the poetry scene and impressing the ladies, he occupied himself with the Communist Party youth organization called Konsumol and joined in 1923. We talked about this kitty commie group last episode. Remember, Konsumol was basically a Communist Party youth league. Many members became Soviet partisans during the Second World War. And one of the most famous Kansomol youth was um, Zoya Kons If I could pronounce her last name. Kosmo There we go. She was an 18-year-old woman who was captured, executed, and mutilated by the Wehrmacht. Brezhnev joined the party in 1929, completed military service between 1935 and 36, and became a political commissar at a tank factory. Stalin's purges put Brezhnev somewhat close to danger, like the purges did to most party members. How close did he come to being purged, though? I can't say for sure due to lack of records showing how close he came to exile or death. If records do exist, they have not yet surfaced, so this fact remains unclear. What we do know is Brezhnev, like Khrushchev before, benefited from the purges because his career advanced as party positions became vacant. Brezhnev was appointed director of a metallurgical technical college, then became deputy director of the Kamenskoye city-soviet. In 1938, Leonid was appointed to head the propaganda department of the Dnipropetrovsk Regional Communist Party, and was promoted again in 1939 Regional Party Secretary, a job that allowed him to start building a power base. When Nazi Germany invaded in 1941, Brezhnev was drafted almost immediately. He helped evacuate the city of Dnipropetrovsk, modern-day Dnipro, about 20 miles or 67 kilometers north of Zaporizhia, at the convergence of the Dnipro and the Samara rivers. Brezhnev was assigned to his former army position as political commissar, which entailed boosting morale among the troops and representing Stalin's regime. According to Susanna Schattenberg, he did not see direct combat, but he was in danger at times and saw the gruesome, destructive aftermath of battle. Like I said earlier, Brezhnev seems to have not, or seems to have a, uh, had an aversion to violence from his experience in prior conflicts. Experiences that later in life would motivate him to avoid a third world war with the West. But a good dictator keeps a facade. Schattenberg says that Brezhnev's role in the Great Patriotic War was greatly exaggerated during his time as General Secretary by the Soviet propaganda machine. I don't want to downplay his service, though, either, uh, because, you know, service is service, and personally, I have not served in any armed forces. The Germans overran Ukraine in 1942, and Brezhnev was transferred to the Red Army's Transcaucasian Front. In 1943, he was appointed head of the political department of 18th Army, which was later reorganized into 1st Ukrainian Front with Nikita Khrushchev as their senior political commissar. Khrushchev took Brezhnev under, on as his, uh, as his sort of protege even before the war, and this will be important for Brezhnev's eventual ascension to power. Towards the end of the war, Brezhnev was appointed chief political commissar of 4th Ukrainian Front, which liberated, then-occupied Prague, Czechoslovakia in May of 1945. Because of his experience in the war, like many, if not all, veterans of World War II, Brezhnev's worldview was changed for the rest of his life. From the late 1940s to the early 50s, Brezhnev advanced within the Communist Party in Ukraine in the Dnipro and Zaporizhia regions, he was temporarily transferred to the Moldova SSR, where he worked with Konstantin Cherneko, future General Secretary, who we'll talk about later. Brezhnev met Stalin once in 1952, after which he was made a candidate for the Presidium, formerly the Politburo. Stalin died in March 1953, and we know that Khrushchev eventually became the big Bolshevik in town and ushered in serious regime change. Brezhnev continued his career advancement in Khrushchev's regime. In 1954, he was appointed second secretary of the Kazakh SSR, modern-day Kazakhstan, and was supposed to be working to increase agricultural productivity, but was actually involved in developing missiles and nuclear arms programs, including the Soviet spaceport known as Baikonur Cosmodrome. He did have at least one hiccup that could have significantly derailed his path to political power. Brezhnev supposed... um, Brezhnev's supposed involvement in agriculture was failing because crop yields in Kazakhstan were piss poor. Brezhnev was recalled to Moscow in 1956, which was a lucky break for him because had Brezhnev stayed, uh, it would have um, looked as if he'd failed to achieve improved harvests in Kazakhstan as part of Khrushchev's Virgin Lands campaign, which was designed to alleviate food shortages in the USSR. Despite this, Brezhnev continued his oversight of Soviet efforts in their space program and the defense industry, and he was firmly part of Khrushchev's inner circle. Well within a position to take a stab at Khrushchev's job should uh, should the circumstances arise, which of course they did. On a personal level, I find Brezhnev's climb pretty incredible. Born into a normal family in Ukraine, had a good had good parents that encouraged him to pursue an education. He faced a huge economic setback when the Bolsheviks took power, but eventually joined them, met the right people, survived, and thrived. In order to understand Brezhnev's rise to power, we have to understand how Khrushchev made himself vulnerable to be overthrown. We breezed over Khrushchev's ousting last episode, so now we'll look at it in more detail. In 1957, Khrushchev successfully staved off a coup attempt by Melenkov, as I mentioned earlier, and he survived the coup with, a, or with the support of the Red Army, Georgi Zhukov, and his protege, Brezhnev. Melenkov, for his failure, was exiled to Kazakhstan, and Khrushchev used this opportunity to solidify his power. But during his tenure as Premier, Khrushchev would alienate the wrong people, particularly influential party members. He pissed off the very people he needed to keep happy if he wanted to continue to run the show. So what happened? Economically, the Soviet Union was not doing so hot. I mentioned food shortages and the government's failed attempt to improve agricultural productivity. Moscow's centrally planned economic policies were not effective on local industrial and agricultural networks throughout the vast Soviet interior. Furthermore, the Soviet economy grew by a mere 6%, measured by Gross National Product, or GNP. Between 1951 and 1955, uh, United States GNP, in contrast, grew by about 16% during the same period. In the Soviet Union, economic growth slowed to 5.8% GNP between 1956 and 1960, and 5% GNP between 1961 and 1965. So their economy grew at a decreasing rate and did not keep pace with the Soviet's major economic rival, the US. You know, if if you're supposedly the world's counterweight superpower to the United States, you'd expect more than lackluster economic growth. To be fair, their was uh, rapid construction of affordable housing or Khrushchevkas uh, that we talked about in the last couple episodes. And there were new consumer goods available such as television sets and other appliances. On the international stage, Khrushchev made several mistakes, uh, two of which we will focus on here. So first is is, uh, Sino-Soviet relations, that is Chinese and Soviet relations. Now, their relations soured during the Khrushchev era see relations between the ussr and china were not necessarily rosy in the first place but khrushchev made things worse china unified in 1949 as the people's republic of china under the leadership of mao zedong and the chinese communist party mao and stalin's ideologies started to or let me start that over mao and stalin's ideologies started to schism into two distinct iterations of marxism stalinism was characterized by authoritarian rule Forced industrialization and collectivization, and brutal execution or exile to punish those who deviated. Stalinism did not set out to export communist, communist revolution internationally. He rather opted for, I guess, what's called uh, socialism by or socialism in one country. Maoism was distinct in that Mao believed not in an industrial workers' revolution, but rather a revolution by agrarian peasants, and that. Uh, Oppressed agricultural workers across the world would rise up and overthrow their Western imperial overlords. Additionally, Mao believed in rehabilitation instead of punishment. So rather than having uh, detractors of Mao's ideas exiled or shot, they would be forcefully re-educated in Mao Zedong thought. Overall, the USSR remained the big daddy commie country, but China increasingly created its own alternative orbit of communist influence. This divergence accelerated after Stalin's death. Mao wasn't a fan of Khrushchev's liberalizing reforms and thought that the way Khrushchev brutally put down the Budapest uprising would delegitimize communism. Yeah, because culling mass amounts of sparrows legitimizes communism. Mao also thought that Khrushchev's handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis made the Soviet leader look weak. In Mao's mind, communism needed a new home base in China. Mao wasn't the only one rattled by Khrushchev's handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Internally, party elites grew weary of Khrushchev's leadership. Khrushchev was making party elites quite soft, shriveled, as if they were up to their groins in Russian snow. Basically, Khrushchev disturbed the economic well-being and security of the party elite. To borrow terminology from the dictator's handbook, Khrushchev lost the support of the Influentials, the very people in the Communist Party who helped form the foundation of Khrushchev's power base. They wanted him out, and you know who else wanted him out? The KGB's leadership, Alexander Shalepin and Vladimir Semichastny. As KGB chief, it was Semichastny's duty to inform Khrushchev of any attempts on the Premier's power. But now he wanted to be instrumental in the removal of Khrushchev, who was unaware of the plot against him, and went on vacation to a Black Sea, a Black sea resort called Pitsunda. Among the conspirators, a minority wanted to only remove Khrushchev from his job as first secretary, but remain chairman of the Council of Ministers. But the majority, which was Brezhnev's faction, wanted Khrushchev removed from power and politics completely. On October 14th, 1964, Brezhnev and his sidekick Nikolai Podgorny denounced Khrushchev before the Central Committee and the Politburo voted to remove Khrushchev from power. Some party members wanted to punish him, but Brezhnev saw little reason to do so beyond keeping Khrushchev away from the Kremlin. Khrushchev received a call from Semichesny and was ordered back to Moscow. And I think that went down something like this. Comrade Khrushchev, you are hereby ordered to return to Moscow immediately. Khrushchev looks up from his desk and locks eyes with the agent with an indignant stare. And if I refuse, the KGB agent turns to an officer in the door and nods. Get Vladimir. A KGB gigachad enters the room with a briefcase clutched in his meaty fist. He slams it on Khrushchev's desk. The latches click and the case flies open, away from the premier. Khrushchev tries to peer over the top. Sit down, comrade. This will only take a moment. The burly agent snickers, as do the other men in the room. Khrushchev starts to sweat as the agent rummages through the briefcase. Suddenly, the agent lifts his arm, displaying a red sock covering his hand. With googly eyes peeking from beneath an oversized KGB service cap, with the hammer and sickle prominently displayed, and a collage of medals fixed to the sock's bust. Well, I'll be a shum of a bitch. It's Comrade Khrushchev. Khrushchev wrinkles his brow. Is this some sort of joke? The only joke I see here is you, Pookie. What is this? Or, who am I, is what you mean. And my name is Vladimir Futnov, the KGB's one and only agent shock puppet. Now listen up here real good, Pookie. Our glorious leader, Lena Brezhnev, sent us here to get you. You sure must get your ass back to Moscow pronto. If it's me who is the question, I will not make a fight of it. Yes, sir, that seems to be the best choice. What if I refuse? Well, let me see here, Pookie. That would be m- most unfortunate. We'd have to, uh. Hey, Shane English. Send you to Jesus. I see. Take him away, boys. Now let what's, uh, what's his laptop here? Cornhub.com? What in a great patriotic fuck? Unlike in previous Russian power struggles, Khrushchev was not exiled or shot. Instead, he was allowed to live in a dacha outside Moscow under 24-hour surveillance by the KGB. Meanwhile, Brezhnev was made general secretary, the same post held by Stalin. Ironically, this was supposed to be a temporary assignment until a more permanent leader could be appointed. But Brezhnev was de jure head of government of the Soviet Union with no significant, well, with a significant caveat. Brezhnev was to rule as part of uh, Troika or triumvirate alongside uh, Nikolai Portgoni, one of his uh, contemporaries in the coup against Khrushchev, as chairman of the Presidium, and another colleague, Alexei Kosygin, as premier. So uh, these three ding-dongs shared power. Why this arrangement, though? Well, due to Khrushchev's decision to combine his roles as first secretary and premier, the Central Committee for- forbade any one person from holding the general secretary and premier positions starting in October 1964, and this legality only lasted until about the mid-70s. Brezhnev moved to secure power from both Progorny and the former KGB chief, Alexander Shalepin. Once those two were forced into retirement, he focused on chipping away at the other obstacle, Kisigin remained premier until shortly before he died in 1980, but Brezhnev was effectively the leader of the USSR. And as a leader, Brezhnev was more careful and less bombastic than his predecessor. Brezhnev took the time to hear the opinions of his colleagues and did not make major decisions without the backing of these close associates. Less less appealing was his political pendulum swing back to Stalinist-style repressions. Upon gaining power, Brezhnev reversed many of Khrushchev's liberalizing reforms and adopted a much more authoritarian attitude to complete with political and cultural repressions. In 1966, two Soviet dissidents, Yuli Daniel and Andrei Siniski, were pu- publicly tried and found guilty of anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda for pr- uh, publishing satirical writings of Soviet life abroad. They'd been under close surveillance by the KGB for years before their arrest, And this was one of the first prosecutions against cultural figures since Stalin's reign. In May 1967, um, Yuri Andropov was appointed to replace Semichastny as KGB chief, or KGB chairman, excuse me. The KGB regained much of the power and extrajudicial status enjoyed by Stalin's NKVD. The KGB infiltrated and stifled internal anti-Soviet groups, but both Brezhnev and Andropov restrained themselves from approaching the level of violence allowed by the secret police. Uh, let's pick up where we left off with the KGB. We'll, we'll return to Brezhnev later in this episode. In the last few episodes, we saw how the KGB was formed, met some of their agents, and looked at their methods, namely infiltration of foreign governments and organizations. Where we left off was the KGB's communication indirectly with representatives of the U.S. government during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Both Semichesny and Shalipin grew weary of Khrushchev and were indispensable in his removal from power, as we just talked about. One of the next major events that caught the KGB's attention was President, um, President Kennedy's assassination in 1963. The KGB is... On the not-so-short list of possible perpetrators of the assassination, Chairman Semichesny had Lee Harvey Oswald's background investigated since Oswald had spent some time in the USSR, but according to the KGB, there were no there was no evidence Oswald was ever involved in any Soviet intelligence networks. Of course, if if there were such ultra-covert KGB operations, records probably don't exist. The Soviet government uh, purposely made the activities of previous agents known to the Soviet people in 1964 the KGB embarked on a campaign to aggrandize the work of previous spies we've met in recent episodes members of the Cambridge 5 Richard uh, Richard Sorge and Colonel Rudolf Abel Semichasny wrote about Abel in a publication of Pravda in May 1965 the idea was that uh, bringing these spies to the forefront of public consciousness would increase the morale of existing field agents. Semichesny stumbled from power, uh, or Semichesny's stumble from power occurred in a pretty interesting way. Svetlana Alleluyeva, uh Stalin's daughter, defected to the United States. This wasn't a good look for the Soviet Union, but apparently not a security threat. Despite this, Semichesny ordered the KGB to kidnap Svetlana, codenamed Kuku, uh, Kukushka, or Cuckoo Bird, by the KGB. And their objective was to return her to the to the Soviet Union. The plot was exposed, and several KGB agents were arrested. Semichastny's days as KGB chairman after that screw-up were numbered. The, Politbu- the Politburo voted to have him removed and appointed Yuri Andropov in 1967. Svetlana, by the way, died in 2011 in a town called Richland Center, Wisconsin, about, four hour, uh, about a four hour drive from Minneapolis. Really, not that far from here. Um, I might make a Patreon-only episode about her because she has a pretty incredible story. You can read the book Stalin's Daughter by Rosemary Sullivan for more info. The Stalin has another descendant in uh, Portland, Oregon, I think, too, if I'm not mistaken. And I think she might be a great-granddaughter. Uh, but I digress. Andropov led the KGB in a new yet familiar direction going into the 1970s. Andropov's appointment came with a caveat. According to historian Ronald Hingley, Andropov lost his secretaryship of the Central Committee, Remember that secret police chairmen were not allowed full membership in the main government committees as a way to check their power. However, Andropov was given candidate membership to the Politburo, and he was the first secret police chief to sit on the Politburo Since Baria, Episode 5. Check it out. The increased security state saw a reinvigoration of the prison system as well. Thousands of both political and religious prisoners were incarcerated throughout the vast Soviet Union, much like the times of Stalin in the gulags. Domestic surveillance on Soviet citizens increased as well as surveillance on Western visitors to the Soviet Union. The KGB kept tabs on students, diplomats, or whoever they could potentially use blackmail on in the future. Audio and video surveillance was conducted using spy gadgets when necessary, cigarette boxes especially made with tiny cameras, briefcases with audio equipment, bugs in radios. And as the decades passed, the KGB took full advantage of technology that their Czechist predecessors could only dream of. Renewed cultural repression took the form of silencing artists and writers, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a a dissident Soviet writer known largely for bringing the gulag's horrors to international attention, was imprisoned under Stalin's regime, freed and exonerated under Khrushchev's, and then stalked by Brezhnev's KGB. The drafts of Solzhenitsyn's work titled The First Circle were confiscated by the KGB. He then wrote in secret The Gulag Archipelago, which seared the reality of the gulags into public consciousness. In August 1971, the the KGB attempted to assassinate Solzhenitsyn by a combination of ricin and other toxins. Though he survived and lived to be 89, the attempt left him permanently ill. And remember that name, ricin. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. What were the KGB's activities outside of the Soviet Union? We'll start with the United States. Last episode, we talked about the Operation Pandora the KGB's ill-fated attempt to spark a race war. Soviet uh, defector Vasily Nikitich Matrokin collected about 30 years' worth of notes, documents, and other primary source materials of KGB operations. With respect to Pandora, this Matrokin archive alleges that in July 1971, the KGB head of the North America Department, a man named Anatoly Tikhanovich Kireyev, ordered KGB residents in New York City to plant explosives in, quote, the Negro sections of New York, end quote. In the ensuing chaos of the seeming the seemingly random acts of violence, the KGB agents would then call Black organizations and claim that the violent acts were perpetrated by the Jewish Defense League. Ultimately, this plot wasn't carried out to completion thanks to U.S. law enforcement arresting those in the spy ring. But fear not, secret police agents, because it does get worse. So we'll go over these KGB operations. Uh, Each is mentioned by the Matrokin Archive. I'll qualify them with the word allegedly and leave it up to you to draw your own conclusions. So here are some prominent operations from the Archive. In 1957, the KGB blackmailed a British member of parliament or an MP from the Labour Party. Allegedly, this MP, Tom Dryberg, interviewed Guy Burgess, one of the Cambridge Five, part five. Check it out. And Dryberg was forced by the KGB to omit Burgess's problem with the devil's nectar, alcohol. And did so by threatening to publish photos of Dryberg having sex with a man, allegedly. That... Makes sense, right? So the KGB needed to hold up their past spies as flawless heroes. So Burgess's alcohol problem had to be buried. Dryberg must have asked uh, Burgess about booze and got the truth. So the KGB had to threaten Dryberg, who had a lot to lose because, well, being a homosexual in Britain was a criminal offense until 1967. Other KGB operations include attempting to bug MI6 installations in the Middle East and Henry Kissinger's office when he was U.S. Secretary of State. Oh, here's another interesting one, too. Um, Last episode, we talked about the KGB's relationship with India. According to the Matrokin Archive, the KGB allegedly controlled 10 of India's newspapers and a press agency. Reporters who worked for KGB-controlled agencies, whether they knew it or not, wrote thousands of articles in the 70s. So we're talking about something like 2,700 articles in 1973, and that increased to about 5,000 in 1975. The KGB also allegedly has some link to Indira Gandhi via financial payments provided to her. Also, Uh, A bit about uh, the, or that bit about the Indian press agencies is going to be more important here in a moment. Okay, so here are some other, uh, some more KGB activities. Let's see, disinformation campaigns in the U.S. like Pandora, we talked about that one. Um, We also have promoting false JFK assassination theories, spreading rumors that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was gay. I think the jury is actually out on that one. I certainly cannot say. I remember this being hinted at in the Clint Eastwood movie called J. Edgar, but perhaps this was left intentionally ambiguous. Um, We learned last episode that the KGB attempted to smear Martin Luther King Jr. Then there was Operation Infection. Oh boy. Buckle up for this one, agents. If you heard my interview with Greg Zink's um, Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast, then you heard some about this already. Uh, Check out Smoke-Filled Rooms, by the way. That's a great podcast. There is a lot to unpack here, and this is definitely within my wheelhouse since I am more or less in the public health field. Operation Infection was a KGB disinformation campaign to spread the idea that the Human Immunodeficiency Virus and Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or HIV-AIDS, was created by the U.S. government. You've probably heard of this conspiracy theory in passing. To go further, this idea suggests that HIV was part of a bioweapons program out of Fort Detrick, Maryland that houses military and civilian agencies like the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease, or USAMRID. Records of this operation were kept by two other secret police forces we'll talk about in the f- in future episodes, I'm sure. The East German Stasi, who codenamed the Operation Denver, and the Bulgarian Committee on State Security, or KSD. This was more than a disinformation campaign. This was a disinformation collab. Also, the KSD is going to come up again in this episode, too. The Cold War was a tangled web of espionage. Defected KGB agent Ilya Zergvelov described the, the details. So the groundwork for infection started in 1962 with an article for one of the Soviet-owned Indian newspapers called Patriot. I, and I tried to find it. Doesn't look like it still exists. In July 1983, a letter to the editor was published by an anonymous and supposed anthropologist claiming HIV came from a USAMRID lab in some kind of plot by the U.S. military to develop biological weapons in violation of the Geneva Convention. According to this anonymous author, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, sent scientists to Africa and Latin America to capture dangerous viruses for analysis at Fort Detrick, Which led to the development of hiv this article claimed that these collection efforts by cdc scientists occurred in pakistan and uh, that hiv would thus spread to india in the immediate term it is possible yet unclear if this was meant to stoke tensions between the us india and pakistan considering that india and pakistan fought a war in 1971. so in 1983 i'm thinking relations between the two nations were still tense. Building on this narrative, the KGB exerted more effort and resources to push the I- th- this same idea globally. Uh, Soviet newspapers like Literaturenaya Gazeta, a known KGB propaganda outlet, published stories about the AIDS panic in the West. The KGB's main method to push this idea this idea was constancy: publish, publish, publish. The Soviet media ran about 40 stories in 1987 alone. The KGB published the narrative in 80 different countries and in 30 different languages. Tell somebody something enough times and they eventually believe it. Meanwhile, real live human beings were suffering the effects of HIV, a disease that attacks a certain immune cell in your body so that it can't fight off other infections. It's like dropping paratroopers and saboteurs behind enemy lines and smashing their defenses, allowing for conventional troops to enter through the front door. And to be clear, the scientific consensus is that HIV originated in Central Africa from certain chimpanzees. Why is that? Well, I think the jury might still be out on this. Uh, but, but some cultures consume um, bushmeat, like like chimps or other exotic animals that could have been contaminated. The virus could have adapted and jumped to humans, since we, we and chimps do share s- uh, similar genomes. Also, with human populations expanding in developing countries, there are more frequent human e- e- encounters with wildlife that carry a microbial wildlife, some of which are pathogenic. And some studies show that HIV made the jump from chimps to humans back in the 19th century. So nature takes time to select a viral species best able to adapt and reproduce. So the iteration of HIV that we got in the 80s likely had genomic similarities to to the original, but different enough for it to be more virulent. That's not to say our government hasn't done abhorrent things to people in the medical field. The Tuskegee syphilis experiments, for one, That kind of ties to this next part, uh, too. What was the ultimate effect of Operation Infection? Well, according to Tom Bogart in Studies for Intelligence, in 1992, 15% of Americans considered it definitely or probably true that, quote, the AIDS virus was created deliberately in a government laboratory, end quote. In a 2005 study by the RAND Corporation and Oregon State University, they discovered that nearly 50% of African Americans thought AIDS was man-made. Over 25% believed AIDS was a product of a government laboratory. 12% believed that it was created and spread by the CIA. And 15% believed that AIDS was a form of genocide against black people. My thoughts are that the KGB's narrative had a lasting effect on a specific demographic of people in this country who already had a a reason to be suspicious as a community because of the aforementioned Tuskegee experiments that were performed on Black people in Macon County, Alabama. I couldn't find a similar survey um, with stats from the gay community to see if their sentiment matches or deviates from those of Black Americans. And, uh, I, and you know, by what magnitude of that deviation? If there is somebody listening who has an answer to this, let me know. The KGB's narrative didn't necessarily affect the medical response to HIV, but it did affect treatment. Josh Yaffa, a writer for The New Yorker, noted that several studies uh, indicated that people who believe HIV, or who believed, excuse me, um, who believe that HIV was a government conspiracy were less likely to practice safe sex to prevent transmission of HIV and less likely to take the recommended medications to treat HIV. Fascinating, right? I can see somebody who is conspiracy minded, take no precautions, get sick, and then think the government was out to get them specifically. We're an insane species, you know that? This lack of precaution on part of some likely cost, likely cost them and probably others their lives because of a KGB dupe. How wild is that? One more operation, then we'll move on. Operation Cedar was allegedly a KGB plot to disrupt U.S. power and trade infrastructure by blowing up dams like Hungry Horse Dam in Flathead County, Montana, which is a very rural area. Uh, the KGB also planned to destroy oil refineries and, and pipelines that run between the U.S. and Canada and plant explosives in the port of New York. All this was again mentioned by Vasily Matrokin in his archive, but of course none of these events happened, and the Matrokin archive doesn't give an explanation as to why they didn't happen. Various missions were meticulously planned. Spies took photos of oil refineries from different angles to look for weak points, the best entry points and getaway routes from these uh, facilities were plotted, The KGB put 13 years of work into this project from 1959 to 1972 for it not to happen. But again, we aren't really sure why that is the case. Probably too much of a risk. Potentially too high of a cost to pay. Loss of KGB agents or sparking World War III. Just speculating. Let's talk about assassinations. That's the good stuff, right? That's why we're all here. Let's talk about probably the most famous Cold War assassination by the KGB. Actually, this one seems like a collab with the Bulgarian KSD. How could I not explore the death of Georgi Markov? I thought this was going to be a quick and dirty overview of this guy's death, but oh my gosh, this is some juicy stuff, so strap yourselves in. Georgi Markov was born in March 1929 in Sofia, in the capital of Bulgaria, and he went on to study chemical engineering as a young man. Psh. <laughs> yeah, whatever, nerd. Sadly, Markov was stricken with tuberculosis at 19, which is a bitch of a bacterial infection, by the way. During this time, Markov sh- uh, shuffled around various hospitals and discovered his knack for writing. He published a novel and a series of short stories in 1957 and 1961, respectively. He became an increasingly successful writer, so much so that he caught the attention of Todor Zhivkov, Bulgaria's communist head of state of the People's Republic of Bulgaria, which was a Soviet satellite state and a member of the Warsaw Pact. Zhivkov was so impressed by, by Markov's talent as a writer and playwright that Markov was approached to serve the regime. One of my sources claimed that Markov was so close to the dictator that he was even invited on Zhivkov's hunting trips. Markov's doing well for himself right here. He is a successful writer and writing high, close to power. It was difficult to tease out exactly why Markov suddenly uh, became on bad, or got on bad terms with the Bulgarian government. Most of the information about Markov focuses on his assassination, which, although important, it's disappointing that sources zoom in on that particular aspect of his demise. What happened was Markov traveled to Italy to visit family to wait out an improved relationship between himself and the Bulgarian authorities. This is me speculating, but I think Markov politely told Zhivkov to kick rocks, and there is no... Well... I think this because there is no indication that he ever actually worked with or for the regime besides hanging out with the dictator, Zhivkov. The authorities didn't take this rejection well and wanted to make his life difficult. Starting by banning one of his books. While in Italy, the Bulgarian government refused to extend Markov's passport, and he eventually defected and moved to London in 1969. Markov worked as a broadcast journalist for the BBC World Service, also Radio Free Europe, which was a U.S. government-funded broadcast company that actually offered news services in Asia and the Middle East. Markov also worked uh, for Deutsche Welle, or DW, or DV, if you speak German. They have a YouTube channel these days. Uh, anyway, Markov was flexing his writing skills as a broadcast journalist. Uh, he met his wife Annabelle and they had a daughter who presumably is still alive but I couldn't really find anything credible about her Uh, I presumably she turns 47 this year so now uh, the communist regime in Bulgaria did not like Markov's um, repatriation to the west and regularly regularly sent him threats Inside Bulgaria, Markov's works, his books, and his plays were banned and pulled from library and bookstore shelves. Any mention of the man was erased. He was an unperson to borrow from Orwell. Markov used his position in the broadcast space to critique and criticize the Bulgarian regime and Zhivkov himself. Despite Bulgaria's best attempts to censor Markov's broadcast in Bulgaria, the transmission still got through, and the Bulgarian citizens heard Markov describe Zhivkov as a second-rate dictator and uneducated. Markov ruffled their feathers, to say the least. He'd been on Zhivkov's hunting trips for shit's sake. I mean, he probably heard all kinds of stuff. The verbal equivalent of Zhivkov's Google search history. If only Zhivkov had been subscribed to the Secret Police podcast. September 7th, 1978. Markov walked to a bus stop across the Waterloo Bridge. He waited for a few moments before a twinge of pain, like a bee sting, surfaced from the back of his right leg. He heard an object, perhaps a walking stick, hit the ground. Markov swiveled around and saw a man pick up an umbrella and dash across the street to a taxi. Markov watched as the taxi turned into a small speck in the distance. The bus arrived and took Markov to work at the BBC, where he examined the back of his leg and found something resembling a pimple. The pain in his leg didn't go away, and he developed a fever that evening and was admitted to the St. James Hospital. He'd struggled for a few more days until September 11, 1978. Markov died. The news was broadcast internationally and upped the ante for Cold War cloak and dagger intrigue. In Bulgaria, however, the news was censored, Markov's own family heard what happened secondhand through friends. Yeah, and what the hell did happen? Doctors tried to determine the cause of death. Markov's symptoms indicated septic shock, but he did not respond to antibiotic treatment, so doctors started to think about poisoning. During an autopsy, attention was paid to the site of the pimple-like spot on Markov's thigh, which needed to be cut out. But why? If he was poisoned, the police needed concrete evidence— Dr. Rufus Crampton performed the autopsy and decided to cut around the spot rather than go poking around in the wound since he didn't know if doing so would further lodge, say, the tip of a needle further into Markov's thigh. The sample of tissue was sent to specialists at Parton Down, one of the British military's biological and chemical weapons labs. Research medical officer David Gall examined the samples. As cross-sectional cuts of the tissue were being taken, a small ball bearing was extracted. It was not much bigger than the tip of a pen, only about 1.7 millimeters in diameter. A metal analysis revealed the bearing was composed of 90% platinum and 10% iridium. We'll come back to the chemistry of this in a moment. Most intriguing were two holes in the bearing discovered using an electron microscope. I mean, this is like seriously something out of the X-Files. It became clear that the bearing itself wasn't poisonous, but the holes in the bearing appeared to form a well which could have contained the poison. Time for some chemistry. The poison was sealed in the ball bearing's holes using tiny plugs or a coating, likely made from some kind of sugar or another water-soluble substance, that would have dissolved in the warm, aqueous environment of the human body. Platinum and iridium were likely selected because they are stable transition metals that the immune system, for some reason, does not attack. But what was Markov poisoned with? That's what we really need to know. There was no trace of any substance left in the bearings reservoirs, and the investigators hit a dead end. The breakthrough came from an identical attack in Paris a couple weeks prior to Markov's attack. Vladimir Kostov exited the Paris metro when he felt a sudden sting in his back. When he spun around, he also saw a man running away from him. What are you doing? Just hanging around. Kostov developed a high fever, was treated in hospital, and recovered. When the news broke about Markov, Kostov figured that was exactly what had happened to him. So doctors removed tissue from Kostov's back where he'd been poked. The samples were sent to London, and lo and behold, they found a similar pen-tip-sized ball bearing with two holes. Inside the holes were traces of ricin. Oh boy, ricin is one of the deadliest poisons. Inhaled, injected, or ingested, one milligram can kill an adult. It has nothing to do with rice. Ricin is derived from the beans of the castor oil plant. The seeds look like, well, they're really quite pretty. They look like little ceramic beads or the pattern on the back of a beetle synthesize and concentrate enough of the ricin of the ricin protein you get something lethal if i wasn't on a watch list before my research into ricin i am now now how does ricin kill you let's go back to high school biology for a moment to dna rna and proteins the central dogma of life is dna transcribed to rna translated to proteins with some exceptions In the process from RNA to proteins, a complex called a ribosome is critical in reading the single strands of RNA and chaining together individual amino acids to create proteins. You, me, your cat, that guy in front of you, and your mom, everybody, needs this process for life. Ricin is a ribosome inhibiting protein, or RIP, for rest in pieces because ricin enters the cells and gives your ribosomes a swift kick to the testicles. Those are scientific terms, obviously, but in layman's terms, it means ricin inhibits the function of ribosomes. So, if radiation destroys DNA, ricin destroys the factory. DNA needs to express itself. Drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Okay. How did Kostov survive the attack, though? The investigators reasoned that because Kostov was wearing a heavy sweater the day that he was stabbed, uh, that the ball bearing did not inject deeply or as deeply into the skin as Markov's. Therefore, the ricin was restricted from traveling to the rest of Kostov's body via capillaries and the lymph vessels. Kostov received a fraction of the dose needed to kill him. Lucky bastard. So who killed Markov? Well, I'm here to tell you guys that after decades of investigation, they arrested, tried, and convicted Mary frickin' Poppins for the murder of Georgi She floated down behind Markov, stabbed him with the Bulgarian umbrella, and floated off. Witnesses said they could hear her singing, Oh, a spoonful of ricin gives you cardiac arrest! She was a terrible person and an agent of the People's Republic of Bulgaria. Kidding, of course. Pinpointing exactly who killed Georgi Markov gets a tad complicated. We know the Bulgarian government under Zhivkov had the motive to kill Markov and threatened to, or, well, and threatened him regularly. The sources indicate that Bulgarian industry at the time did not have the means to produce ricin, which I'll explain briefly, um, but only briefly because I don't want to get arrested. involves um, make well making ricin involves a combination of cooking and mashing the castor beans and extracting the liquid from the pulverized mess, with some other chemistry involved. It's something that I have never done, Google told me. But the Soviets did have the means to manufacture ricin because the Soviets had a large and long-standing biological weapons program. What I found a bit more interesting is that Russia has or had platinum deposits in the, in the Urals and out in Krai, a region in Siberia. And it doesn't look like Bulgaria had major deposits of platinum ore. What I can gather from my research is that the Bulgarian Committee for State Security carried out the attack. So likely one of their agents, but the poison and the weapon, the Bulgarian umbrella, were provided by the Soviets. So an assassination carried out with KGB assistance and support. But who specifically, which individual actually did the crime? That fact has not quite been determined. Investigators in the post-communist Bulgaria reopened the case in 1991. A dossier was discovered among the Bulgarian uh, communist state archives that shed light on the killer. A Bulgarian intelligence agent based in Copenhagen codenamed Piccadilly under the assumed alias Francesco Golino, an Italian man recruited by Bulgarian intelligence. Police caught up with Galino and interrogated him, but no evidence was ever uncovered, and they let him go. Last known location of Galino was uh, indicated in a German arrest record in 2002, and under Bulgarian law, Galino would have had to have been uh, prosecuted before September 2008, per their statute of limitations, if he was indeed the assassin. Nor Galino, nor any other individuals have ever been arrested or connected with Markov's murder. I know that was a bit long-winded, and not directly about the KGB, but this is probably the most Cold War of Cold War assassinations. The Bulgarian Committee for State Security will get its own episode in the future. So to quickly recap, the KGB's foundational methods in the 1970s and 80s didn't change much beyond utilizing different technology that was available to them. This is still an era where they relied heavily on human intelligence, that is, sending a human on a mission rather than, say, hacking. But the KGB leveraged the power of the media to form public opinion, creating smoke, mirrors, and deception, and assisted their satellite state security agencies built in the image of the KGB to carry out assassinations of dissident voices. The KGB operated in other arenas of the Cold War, so let's move on to their role in key events during the Brezhnev era, starting with the Prague Spring. Czechoslovakia fell under communist rule in the aftermath of World War II. The Warsaw Pact between the Soviet Union, Romania, Poland, Hungary, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Albania was formed in May of 1955. Czechoslovakia experienced a communist coup in 1948, but a a, a socialist republic wasn't established until July 1960. Living under Moscow's thumb wasn't going as well as hoped. Big shocker, right? The Czech economy was shrinking and their standard of living declined. Resentment grew towards Moscow, and resentment likely was growing towards or directed at Brezhnev as well. Aleksandr Dubček was elected as first secretary of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. But Dubček was not your carbon copy communist. Dubček was more of a reformer and wanted to grant additional rights to the Czechoslovak people by enacting policies to decentralize the economy and usher in partial democratization. Restrictions on media, speech, and travel loosened. Next, Dubček presided over the country split into the Czech Socialist Republic and the Slovak Socialist Republic. Dubček's reforms, surprise, surprise, were not popular with the Soviets, especially Dubček's attempts to decentralize communist authority. That's a big no-no. We can't have that. No siree, Bob. It made Brezhnev's trouser bandit soft like a spaghetti noodle. About half a million Warsaw Pact troops were deployed to invade and occupy Czechoslovakia. The Soviets estimated it would take four days to subdue the country, and how wrong were they? It took eight months of fighting fierce guerrilla resistance before the Soviets took control of and occupied the country, Until which the occupation lasted until 1991. Dubček was forced to resign as First Secretary in 1969 and removed from the party, but he was allowed to keep his life. And if uh, this had happened under Stalin, he probably would have been shot. The KGB did their part by infiltrating groups involved in Czechoslovakia's uh, democratization process. There we go. Uh, Now, in in this mission called Operation Progress, the KGB uh, embedded agents at um, Charles University in Prague the Socialist and Christian Democrat parties, and other political organizations that only existed at the Communist Party's atheistic blessing. Moscow was interested in keeping tabs on this movement and agents fed the Kremlin the information needed to prepare for invasion. Let's head over to the United States and check in on probably our most pressing foreign issue in the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam War. And what was the level of involvement of the KGB in the Vietnam War? Now, I'm not going to go into detail about the war itself, but as far as the KGB's role, they assisted Vietnamese intelligence with varying results. The KGB trained their North Vietnamese in radio interception, which is interesting because that's what Rudolf Abel did. Part 7, Spycraft. Check it out. What the KGB did was send a team of radio interception specialists to provide training, and that was not the first time the Soviet intelligence had done that. I mentioned Abel's involvement in this sort of thing, and I believe it was the KGB that provided uh, the same services to the North Korean intelligence as well. It also appears that the KGB conducted interviews or interrogations of captured U.S. soldiers after the end of the war. In January 1992, the New York Times ran a story about Hanoi announcing that at least one interrogation had occurred in 19 uh, let's see 1973. So KGB General Oleg Kuligan testified before the Senate uh, before a Senate committee that numerous American POWs were interviewed between 1975 and 78. The purpose was to gather intel or recruit additional Soviet spies. Additionally, Soviet Army Intelligence, or the GRU, who admitted that we haven't really talked much about, but they also interrogated Americans, but were more interested in U.S. military technology and technical knowledge, such as radios that compressed transmissions before sending them, which made sending and receiving a lot faster. Armed conflict wasn't the only area the KGB competed for supremacy. Quick mention of a topic we haven't talked much about on Secret Police yet, and that's sports. Countries have shown off their power via their athletes for probably thousands of years. The USSR was no exception, and the KGB helped their athletes project Soviet strength on the international playing field, quite literally. In 1983, KGB agents were appointed to the Soviet Olympic Committee by by the uh, director Yuri Andropov, agents um, Anatoly Gresko, who'd been banned from the UK for espionage, Semyon Nitkin, an associate of one of the Cambridge Five, and another chap named Popov. <laughs> it's just, that's, the, that's the name the source has, just Popov. Uh, so during the 1980 Olympic Games, uh, Soviet security officials posed as anti-drug authorities for the International Olympic Committee and sabotaged drug tests to cover up illegal performance enhancement. A couple sources I read noted that when Soviet teams traveled abroad, they were often accompanied or monitored by a KGB agent, especially for players or coaches, having friendly relations with fellow athletes from Canada and the United States. Look at us, discussing sports and chemistry on Secret Police. There's truly something here for everyone. But you might have just caught this. The United States didn't participate in the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow because of our next international event, the Soviet invasion of afghanistan afghanistan is a landlocked country at the crossroads of central asia the middle east south asia and it's like a juncture between east and west in history it is often the center it was often at the center of surrounding dominant powers afghanistan didn't care though they thought never mind all that we will be in the business of burying empires the graveyard of vampires even though afghanistan is landlocked its environment is mountainous arid and inhospitable. It's not Hawaii. Afghanistan borders Pakistan to the south, Iran to the west, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan to the north, and a small sliver of border to the east with China. This piece of border is only 76 kilometers or 47 miles long. The Afghan-Chinese border is as long as Rhode Island is tall. By that, I mean Rhode Island's uh, north-south border with Connecticut. Afghanistan is about the same size as Texas and nearly twice the size of California. It's a big place and quite ethnically diverse, and Islam, as you imagine, or as you probably guessed, is the dominant religion. I've never, I've never been there, but I, I have a friend who was uh, in the Air Force stationed at Bagram Air Base. Temperatures can plunge in the winter with an average temperature in some areas dropping around negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 26 degrees Celsius. And blazing summers with temperatures that can go as high as 109 degrees Fahrenheit or 40, 43 C. It's like hotter than Satan's left testicle. Afghanistan has largely remained one of the least developed countries in the world economically, and that could be partly due to its uh, its geography and political instability, which hinders foreign investment. But they do export uh, fruits, nuts, and Afghan rugs, uh, which are becoming popular again. Since the U.S. withdrawal from the country... And the re-establishment of, the, of Taliban control, the U.S. has placed sanctions on Afghanistan to the tune of freezing about nine billion dollars of assets. So why was the Soviet Union so interested in Afghanistan? Rumor has it that Brezhnev loved to rub himself against Afghan rugs. He would lock himself in his dacha, stripped down to nothing but his socks and shoes, and flop down on his back, purr and flick his hands and feet in the air like a cat. He'd say, "Who's the general secretary?" I'm the general secretary. Rumor also has it that I made that up during a lecture on uh, salmonella outbreaks. But seriously, what did the Soviet Union have to gain from invading Afghanistan? Let's turn back the clock to 1973. Mohammad Daoud Khan seized power from his cousin in a coup, declared himself president and prime minister in the newly formed Afghan Republic. At first, he pushed for progressive policies. But over time, Afghanistan's multiple ethnic groups grew unhappy with his leadership. Khan responded by restricting civil liberties, but his days were numbered because neither Afghanistan's left-wing groups nor the traditionalists liked him, which, you know, you kind of need somebody to like you if you want to hold on to power. In April 1978, Khan was ousted in a revolution that ushered in the Communist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan with Prime Minister Hafizullah Amin. Great news for the Soviets to have an ally in the center space of the geographical chessboard. Amin pushed for more women's rights, socialism, and equality from the top down, which alienated Afghanistan's rural, very conservative class. Dissent was met with imprisonment and execution, which led to riots and revolt. President Noor Mohammad Taraki called on the Soviet military for aid to both quell the riots, but also to get rid of Amin. But whoops. Amin caught wind of the plot and after a lot of cloak and dagger maneuvering, he had Taraki, um, oh boy, uh, um, how do you, how do you say, um, he had Taraki dispatched to the afterlife. How exactly? Apparently in September of 1979, Amin asked Brezhnev personally what to do with Taraki, which Brezhnev replied that it was Amin's choice. And uh, I mean, chose execution. I mean, duh. I just, I just told you, Taraki was executed, or was evicted from his mortal shell. Assassins armed with, can you guess? A pillow. Yes. Three men tasked tasked with killing Taraki ordered him to lay down, which apparently he did without uh, <laughs> without resistance. He was kind of old. Maybe he thought it was just nap time. Well. This old man was about to take the longest nap of his life because they smothered him with the pillow. And I honestly wonder if the pillow was soft or firm. Maybe it had like a cartoon character on it or a smiley face with the phrase, shit happens. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, the possibilities are endless. Of all the weapons we've discussed here on Secret Police, I think the pillow is the deadliest. Deadlier than the Bulgarian umbrella. Uh, You know, we have the Afghan pillow. What's your weapon of choice? Brezhnev was shocked when he heard about Taraki's death. Excuse me, Comrade Brezhnev. Uh, did, did you tell Amin it was his choice what to do with Taraki? No, I, I said you have a lovely voice. Why? Uh, Taraki was assassinated. Here, read this. What in the hammer and sickle shit is happening in that country? Brezhnev looked at this situation and the ensuing Islamic revolution in Iran from his point of view islamic revolution could spread from iran and afghanistan through their muslim majority soviet republics like uzbekistan or turkmenistan who then might break away from the soviet union or perhaps more frightening for brezhnev the possibility of kazakhstan breaking away from or breaking out in a islamic revolution considering kazakhstan was the home of baikonur cosmodrome nuclear test sites and accounted for about 12% of the soviet union's landmass You know what I mean? Like, when you look at a map of the Soviet Union and compare it to modern-day Russia, and then you realize Russia's head used to be a lot bigger, well, that's because of Kazakhstan. Brezhnev needed to prevent revolution from getting to that point, so it was decided to invade Afghanistan. But first, let's catch up with Brezhnev, because we do have more to discuss with him, and then we'll come back to the KGB's role in the Soviet-Afghan war. I mentioned Brezhnev's leadership style briefly. He was more cool-headed than his predecessor and more amicable. He was loyal to his friends, but may have liked the display of ceremonies a bit too much. But he really enjoyed his own, you know, personality cult. He also didn't do much, if anything, to control corruption within the Communist Party. He also very much enjoyed the traditional socialist greeting. Oh, yes, did he ever? This fraternal greeting between socialist leaders could be three kisses on alternating cheeks. Brezhnev preferred a kiss on the lips. He kissed many politicians during his time as leader. He really liked to kiss people, guys. Maybe with tongue? I don't know. Uh, hopefully not after eating something fishy. The most famous example of this was his deep, passionate kiss with Erich Honecker of East Germany. A kiss second in fame only to that of Romeo and Juliet was depicted on a mural in the on the Berlin Wall after it was torn down. Comrade Brezhnev, how can you tell that somebody can be trusted? Come here, comrade, and we'll both find out just how deliciously trustworthy you are. No, thank you. Brezhnev's health deteriorated through the 1970s. Stress from the job, especially considering the economic stagnation, and troubles in his marriage and family took a toll. He'd been a heavy smoker for much of his life, drank in excess, and didn't maintain a healthy weight. In 1975, he suffered a stroke, and then increasingly relied on a few trusted individuals like Yuri Andropov, the KGB chairman, and a handful of other ministers for the day-to-day business of running the government. This is where we return to the topic of the invasion of Afghanistan. What year did the Soviets launch the invasion? December the 24th, 1979. Yep, right on Christmas Eve. And this this would have been well into Brezhnev's health struggles. Some sources I read indicate that... The decision to invade Afghanistan may not have been decided upon with the full mental faculties of the General Secretary. Rather, the invasion was the decision of his committee of loyal advisors looking at the same information, that is, the risk of Islamic revolution and the unstable situation in Afghanistan. The KGB tried to poison Amin by contaminating cans of Coca-Cola with a toxin before these same drinks were served at a lunch gathering of Amin's party members. Of course, those people drank the sodas, and some of them lost consciousness. I mean, no surprise there. You're basically drinking something so loaded with uh, phosphoric acid it can remove rust. Oh, yeah, and then there's the the poison. I imagine, I mean, swiveled his head angry at this lifeless crowd going, Wow, I didn't think my speech was that boring, you jerks. And this Coke incident? Uh, Drink, not powder. Uh, happened not long before the KGB, Spetsnaz, and GRU special forces stormed the presidential palace. The palace was one of many targets in the Soviets' crosshairs. The invasion was initially successful. The Soviets captured or destroyed critical infrastructure like bridges and roads, communication lines, and uh, they tried to capture Amin. I wonder if any of the soldiers got to the palace after a hard day's fight and thought, wow, thank Lenin these Cokes are here. Amin may have died in the crossfire during the assault, nobody really quite knows, but I think, and this is me just speculating, that the Soviets captured him and took him to a torture dungeon with a vast array of plush pillows. Maybe the KGB first beat him like a one-sided pillow fight, then smothered Amin until his soul went to the beyond without much of the bed or the bath. You know, how the old maxim goes, live by the pillow, die by the pillow. With Amin gone, the Soviets propped up a more moderate leader named Babrak Karmal. Regional warlords were driven away and retreated to the mountains as the Soviets advanced. And these warlords united against their common enemy and formed, can you guess the name of this group? That's right, the People's Pillow Battalion, who put Soviets in forever naps with only the finest, softest pillows from face-crushing Cushion Emporium. Well, that's nonsense, of course. Uh, No, they, they formed the Mujahideen, heard of them. The Mujahideen were giving the Soviets hell with their mountainous terrain and guerrilla tactics, but the Soviets had superior firepower. The U.S. observed this situation, like Michael Jackson munching popcorn, and thought, hey, I have an idea. Then the U.S. funneled weapons through Pakistan to the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen's call for jihad or a holy war attracted foreign fighters and supporters, including, uh, can you guess this guy? Starts with an O. That's right, Osama bin Laden. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. As the war dragged on, Soviet soldiers and citizens were getting fed up with the whole thing, and the Soviets getting their asses kicked by a band of ragtag radicals wasn't a good look for a superpower. The Soviets withdrew in February 1989, having suffered nearly 15,000 Soviet soldiers killed. Of the KGB's 90,000 border troops and other KGB detachments, about 570 were killed in the entirety of the conflict. Meanwhile, in the Kremlin, Brezhnev's health further deteriorated between 1981 and 1982. He suffered some kind of odd uh, injury while touring a factory, which the Soviets said was a stroke, which was plausible since he suffered from um, atherosclerosis. Oh my gosh, I can't say this word: atherosclerosis, or the thickening of arteries due to fatty plaque buildup. November 7th was his last public appearance on Lenin's mausoleum, and then Leonid Brezhnev. The kid from a normal Ukrainian family, who rose to the party apparatus and the state, outmaneuvered his competition for power, suffered a heart attack, and died on November 10th, 1982. Yuri Andropov, the KGB chairman, succeeded Brezhnev. Some of you may have caught in the opening scene that Korean Airlines 007 was shot down during Andropov's reign, not Brezhnev's. So KAL 007 had mistakenly drifted into Soviet airspace over Sakhalin Island. On radar, the Soviets thought the plane was a spy plane, specifically a U.S. Air Force RC-135. The Soviet fighter pilot, Major Gennady Asipovich, thought the Americans dressed up a spy plane aircraft to look like a passenger jet, complete with navigation lights, two rows of windows, the works. Osipovich attempted to warn the plane to leave Soviet airspace, and for some reason, the pilots of KAL-007 did not vacate nor had they realized they were dangerously off course. Osipovich shot down KAL-007 and returned to base thinking he had earned himself a medal. But instead, unbeknownst to him, he had just killed 269 people, including 22 children under the age of 12. The incident did spark fears similar to those felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis from last episode that nuclear war would break out. You know, fear of nuclear war resurged in the 80s. Brezhnev beefed up the Soviet military, increasing the Red Army budget about 40% between 1965 and 1970. By the time of his death, the military ate up about 12% of Soviet GNP. Western observers estimated Soviet forces somewhere between about 3 and 5 million total. Red Army ground troops in 1983 could muster about three million if needed to prepare for imminent war. In the U.S., the original Red Dawn came out in 1984, the day after came out in 1979, a bit later, uh, but uh, Hunt for Red October was was released in 1990, but that definitely captures uh, the um, nuclear tensions felt in the 80s. I think the 60s with the Cuban Missile Crisis certainly overshadows the Cold War as the closest we got to nuclear war, but the 80s are a close second, if not right up there alongside with the 60s. 80s films definitely captured that nuclear cultural zeitgeist, if you will. Books too, like Orwell's 1984, published in 1949, depict a post-apocalyptic dystopian future. Bonus episode on the Thought Police, check it out. And of deregulated select industries in the USSR, but ultimately kept their planned or uh, command economy model, He cracked down on Brezhnev's friends, tarnished by corruption. He continued the war in Afghanistan and increased the Red Army's budget in response to America's hawkish take on the, quote, evil empire declared by President Ronald Reagan. Andropov's little comrade went from 6 to 12 when he wielded power, but he only lasted about 15 months in office and died on February 9, 1984, of kidney failure exacerbated by other chronic conditions like diabetes. His deputy, Konstantin Chernenko, took the role of general secretary, and he was already elderly and sick when he was appointed to the top spot. He only served 13 months before dying on March 10, 1985. The next general secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, presided over the fall of the Soviet Union. Let's recap. Leonid Brezhnev came from a fairly humble background. His parents encouraged him to pursue his interests and obtain an education. The Bolshevik Revolution and Civil War disrupted his family's life for the worst, But Brezhnev joined the ranks of the Communist Party and worked his way through regional administrations in the Ukraine SSR. Brezhnev served in the Red Army during the Great Patriotic War against Germany and saw some destruction and violence, but largely had no combat role. An aspect of his service that would be exaggerated during his time as General Secretary. He kept his head down and worked hard during Stalin's purges and rode Khrushchev's coattails into a position where he could take the top job upon Khrushchev's ousting with the help of the KGB. Khrushchev lost his power base and the Presidium voted to remove him from office and elected Brezhnev, Alexei Kosygin, and Nikolai Podgorny as a trifecta of leadership. Within the next 10 years or so, Brezhnev would force these two colleagues into retirement to become more or less the Soviet Union's sole leader. Yuri Andropov was appointed KGB chairman and opted for increased domestic repressions. The KGB infiltrated both domestic dissident groups and foreign governments, supported assassinations, and conducted espionage operations. The KGB assisted the North Vietnamese Army with radio and intelligence training in their fight against the United States. They also laid the political and intelligence groundwork for the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The 1980s were a time of resurgent fears of nuclear war, especially when these tensions heated up in the wake of the downing of Korean Air 007 by the Soviets. Kind of eerie to think that war could have been sparked by a misunderstanding or mistake between the two superpowers. Brezhnev was not in good health and struggled with multiple conditions until his death in 1982. Yuri Andropov was elected general secretary and lasted 15 months and died in February of 1984. Chernenko took power and was clearly inspired by his predecessor, and followed his example by dying 13 months into the job in March of 1985. Next episode, we'll look at the life and leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev, the downfall of the KGB, the Chernobyl nuclear accident, and how the USSR unraveled. Only one more episode in this series after that one. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you can join me for the next one. Thank you for listening to secret police and a special thanks to my supporters for their generosity. You can find my socials at secret police podcast on Instagram or at hush underscore popo on Twitter. Please don't invade Afghanistan in the next couple weeks or ever. And don't poke anybody with a poison umbrella or smother anyone with a soft plushy cloud-like pillow agents dismissed. of ricin gives you cardiac arrest.